They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Sorry. Do you want to go on my shoulders? Yeah, that'd be unreal, thanks. Wow. Three celebrates connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.ae forward slash music. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, the Compulsive Reader. And our guest today is Graham Kinross-Smith, author of The Long Afternoon of the World. Welcome, Graham. Good, good evening. Good, good morning. Yes. You've arrived lots of the people. Um, can you briefly sum up The Long Afternoon of the World for the listeners who might not be familiar with it? Just a quick overview. Yes, it's, it's a literary novel, uh, which means it's reasonably long. It's about 134,000 words or so. Uh, and, uh, and and that's in distinction, you know, from a, a romance novel or a popular novel. Uh, and it's the story of uh, a writer who, in his middle age, uh, discovers the reason why he's always felt just slightly out of kilter in the family with his siblings and so on. Uh, and he discovers this by means of... Uh, well, suddenly finding clearing his father's house that uh, there are photographs and letters that he's never heard of and never been shown and so on, and that gradually builds the picture of of why it's different, not going to the deeper because it's urging, you know. But so it's, it's this gradual uncovering of um, uh, his identity, if, if you like. But, uh, of course, involved with that is the way that life generally works it throws, it bombards you with all sorts of things. It throws all sorts of things at you, as Virginia Woolf discovered and uh, James Joyce discovered many years ago in telling their stories. So um, it's a it's a book written in what I call modules. They're, they're short scenes, if you like, or short life studies uh, that gradually build through his childhood and um, adolescence and. Uh, youth and uh, education and marriage and so on and so on uh, to the point where he's at this middle-aged stage. And it, it spans the period in Melbourne, in the Victorian Valley, and uh, particularly on the Victorian way towards the... Uh, there are elements of Sydney towards the end of the book too. Um, but uh, it spans those places from the period of his... Uh, childhood in the 1930s until the 1980s, roughly. Um, so that's probably a general description of it. Um, the other thing I think that is important is uh, uh, the way it looks at time, or the way he, uh, Tim, the first person narrator, looks at time. Uh, and the senses that time is not linear it doesn't go from point A to point B it's 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 like a circular thing that floats around to you again so that events can can return in some ways and you can almost intuit them in some ways because they they probably happened before in a sense um, and so this gives an insight into things and even a prescience and uh, a sense of seeing that makes him almost prophetic sometimes. Uh, 
Yes, and it's interesting you mention that because um, we know, I mean, you tell us quite clearly that, that Tim is 46. Yeah. But I get the feeling at times that that, that, that age is it's almost nominal, that, that um, past, present, and future tend to, to circle around that 46. Sometimes I feel yes. much older than that. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, and uh, the sense of the past is is quite strong in it because it's a... Uh, as we say in the blurb, I think uh, it's a novel of the Australian generations. It really, as well as spanning his lifetime, <clears throat> it's talking about his uh, parents and his grandparents to a certain extent and the uh, uncles and aunts and so on that he has. Uh, so that those generations... And it also goes forward from his children extent uh, into the future. He... He worries about his children to a certain extent, uh, what, what life's going to dish up to them, uh, uh, what they can endure themselves and so on, what they will probably never understand, uh, never tumble to and so on. Mm. Now, just to, again, give us a, a flavour of the book, can you read us that brief passage? Uh, yes, I could. Uh, it's uh, a passage that I suppose does reflect some of what I've been saying is He's a writer, as I've said, and he's always writing in the present tense, uh, and of course in the first person because he's declaring himself, but he's also almost looking over his shoulder uh, as he's writing and thinking about his position in the world. Uh, so this is perhaps one of those passages that illustrates that. So the happenings push themselves at me. I write about them in the old church that no one wanted. I stumbled upon it and bought it one winter ten years ago. It's weatherboard and pinnacled. Its floor slopes. Hills flock down on me. Roads ribbed with tree shadow run away from me towards a horizon of gums. It is Victoria, surrounding me in the notes on paper and the map brushed by the cheek of my hand. I look up to see half of a sheep shear from the Berry Willock farm, hanging from a nail near the door of the church. A boot scraper now and way out of its true country. There was a spent tank in the yard of John and Pearlie's old house when I was up there, and the bees coming and going from the corner of the veranda roof, and some corrugated iron wrapped around a tree like a piece of limp seersucker. Ah, the place where my mother had part of her growing up with flute and candles and Joyce and Dares and Jean. That well to get to know my farm that Luke ran after John and Pearlie had moved to Melbourne just after the war had begun and the others had spread to the four winds. A boat in the shed too. Did Uncle Fluke use it on the dam? Did they cart it to the Murray? The old wood is trying to blossom through several coats of paint. The rollock has gone from one side, leaving a grey gap in the timbers. For a moment I see Fluke there, standing just under the machinery shed's shade, turning something over with his boot and then walking a few paces in the dust, stopping, scratching his head. As I write, I'm aware of time circled far out there, a bright bracelet. It surrounds me. I can sense happenings, afternoons, dire weeks with no words, nights of breathing and skin's touch, days of illness waiting for the body to signal all right again. They're all strung along the brightness. I smell an opening into light and a man's hands. They are young. The hairs on them still dark and sharp against the sun-browned skin. The hands are carrying sheaves of oats to the chaffka. I 
see the hands, the rolled up sleeves of a striped shirt, creases outlined in work grime, the ears of oats. I hear the steady stutter of the engine rollicking on at stand, the bucketing of the belting, running, running. There's a welter of stalks crowding the smooth steel mouth of the cutter. The hands bring two more sheaves. The sweet-smelling crush of stalks is sitting there, held back by the mouth of stalks further in, not descending, not bending to be drawn into the blades. The hands dump the two new sheaves on the ruck of stalks, push them down and in. I can feel the young man's shoulder muscles tensing against the crush, pushing once, twice, and then a change of position, three times. Then suddenly I feel avoiding a release, the hands and the straining fingers plunging down with the grey, fragrant ground stalks. There's a blinding hurt, a scrabbling in the moor of the cutter, a scream, a yell. The belting rips on, bucketing, running. Then another other hands grab, miss, grab again and pull a lever with desperate strength and the belting stops. I can hear it crying, suddenly cut off. There's a breathing, a low voice, swearing and whimpering. Then there are words that lose their resonance as soon as they're uttered against the straw of the piles of stoops, the pile of chaff, the closeness of the earthen-floored shed, the hewn rafters grey with dust. Suddenly, as though they've been thrust at my face, I see the bloody stumps of fingers, some of them points of incredible white against the red pulp. It is flute. I hear flutes whimpering, swearing. They're flute's hands. It's what's called the past. I get up from the chair, my gore rising, and walk to the church window. Half an hour ago, hail was down all over the outside in the yard. But now the sun's golden rays are reaching into the boobialas, dappling, weaving, patching and shining the wet trunks and branches. I'm fretting, breathing hard, my heart racing. It's what's called the past and another place that's grasped me and released me. I leave the computer, seating the input itself on the desk, push against the heavy door, tread down the steps and out onto the wet grass. I recall that passage quite well too. That um, the, the sense of voiding when the, the fingers get cut. Yes, it's very powerful. Yeah. And you mentioned twice in that passage, it's what's called the past. Yes. So that is what it, I guess that does illustrate what you were talking about—the the whole notion of of time, and um, you know the way we label something the past. But he's there, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's yes, he's there with this sort of pressed that he has uh, and at another stage in the story I don't know whether you'd recall this passage but this, uh, he's aware of uh, three or four people in a car travelling towards the coast and uh, he doesn't know why he's aware of this he's just he's just working down at the church and you know clearing and lopping and so on and so on but he's sort of aware of these uh people approaching the sea and looking forward to seeing the ocean I mean it's the future uh, it's not the past in this case you know, yes. it's the future and he, he says you know this is going to happen something's going to happen what is it you know and ultimately he finds himself uh, on the clifftops uh, watching the, the same people he, he intuits that they're the people that he'd been thinking about um, and he uh, sees a terrible drowning. Um, so it's, it's, a past. it's uh, the, the past is the sinuous or the future and the past 
as, a, as continuous present. And even in identity, I get the feeling he kind of weaves in and out of these characters. Um, yeah. He sort of becomes them in a, in a way. Yes, yes, that's right. He inhabits them to a certain extent. And it's yeah. interesting that you mentioned at the beginning of, um, of our conversation Virginia Woolf and, uh, and Joyce as well. But, you know, yes. it, it does remind me, um, more so now that you've mentioned it, of the waves and the way the, um, the characters tend to, to change time frames and weave in and out of one another yes. in, a, in a way of, of identifying who they are. Yes. Uh, you probably would have, uh, you would have picked up, uh, it's worth reading actually, I think if you can stand it, uh, the uh, epigraph. Uh, four epigraphs at the beginning of the, of the book. Um, one is about photography, uh, where Elizabeth Barrett, this is back in 1843, she's looking at a photograph and thinking, you know, the fact of the very shadow of a person lying there fixed forever, she can't believe what photography can do. And photography becomes very important in the novel. But uh, a bit further down is the quote that always rings with me from Virginia Woolf. I mean, she and Joyce and, to a certain extent, Dorothy Richardson, who's a lesser-known writer than either of them, uh, they're all working in their own garrets, if you like, but coming to the same conclusion that the traditional way of telling a story didn't represent the way life works, the way the human mind is bombarded with all sorts of stuff, you know, instantaneously, almost. Do you want me to read it? Sure. It's very, it's very short. Mm. Yeah. Uh, she, she just said, this is, this is a... a talk she gave at the Oxford Union, I think, originally, we went into a book called The Common Reader. She says, examine for a moment an ordinary mind, an ordinary day, receives a myriad impressions, trivial, fantastic, evanescent, or engraved with the sharpness of steel. From all sides they come, an incessant shower of innumerable atoms, and as they fall, and as they shape themselves into the life of Monday or Tuesday, the accent falls differently from of old. The moment of importance came not here, but there. You know, and that's what I'm trying to reflect, really. Uh, but, of course, it means uh, when you're writing a book of this length, um, you know, you've got to be sure that you're giving the, the reader enough clues to know where they are. But certainly the reviews that I've had, you know, so far have endorsed that and said, yes, the reader does know. Doesn't yes. Know and, yeah, and <laughs> certainly, there's, there, there does seem to be um, an Arachnid thread through it, and I guess that's Tim, and, and Tim is a you know as an individual who ties it yeah. all together. Yes. But tell me, yes. where did the story originally begin? Did you did you actually begin with that notion of wanting to um, explore in fiction um, some of, of those Wolfian ideas, or um, did you begin with something else? No, I began with the whole idea of story, really. But also, um, I wanted to, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm known probably before this anyway, mainly as a poet, right? And I wanted to use the language in the way that a poet might use the language to a certain extent. I mean, without overdoing it. I, I had that in my mind anyway as, as the sort of tone of voice of the writing, if you like. Uh, but there were two things going on. I had to... Uh, you know, when you take on something of this length, you, you've got to be pretty sure that your basic narrative line is going to work, uh, that it, it can be jumped up and down on with uh, on our boots sort of thing. Uh, and I wanted, I sought around for what my experience would suggest, what my family experience would suggest, um, 
how would I tell a story that had a, an intriguing character to it, an intriguing question to be answered? Uh, how would I tell that in this way? So I, I was searching around for a while. You know, you waste quite a lot of words, thousands of words, I suppose, uh, trying to find just what's going to work in terms of the storyline and the tone of voice. And once you've got it, you know you've got it, and away you go. And uh, and boy, you know, when I was uh, writing Full Tilt, I'd be doing uh, when, when the thing was going well. You know, I'd be writing three shifts a day, sometimes in heat waves, sometimes in frosty weather, and so on, and hardly even notice it. You know, you can churn it out when you're fairly confident of where it's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and. Tell me about how it reappears in the book. Uh, it's mentioned, I think, maybe in a letter. Um, but but tell me exactly what you you had in mind with it. Well, uh, it's one of the. It, it it comes back to that element of time. Um, at one stage, or in fact, even even when um, Tim, the narrator, uh, stumbles again on these people that he's sensed going to the ocean, and he sees this horrible washing of one of the teenagers over the brink and into the ocean. Um, he says, uh, you know, why am I uh, admitted, uh, allowed to see this in time's long afternoon, uh, in the long afternoon of the world? Uh, so it's this idea of a sort of a continuous present. Um, and... Uh, I- Suppose title came and uh, that echo here and there at various points in the novel because uh, you know sometimes you're sitting there on a still afternoon and this is the way it feels that all of this might have happened before it might have happened millions of times before um, that, that this moment this afternoon is everything yes yes mm. yeah. now one one of your reviewers. So. You pointed me to a couple of reviews, and they were wonderful, but one of them commented quite um, heavily on the fact that you've come to novel writing fairly late in your writing life. Yeah. At the time already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you, he, said, he finishes off by saying, oh, look at the clock, he's 71 years old. <laughs> but, you know, you've had 10 other books published, including short stories. Yeah. Um, does this book feel to you like the continuation of a long writing career, or do you feel that you've turned a liter- literary corner, that, that, you know, novel writing is something completely different? Um... Not completely different, but I, I see it as a sort of a progression through. Uh, when, when I first began writing, you know, I wrote fiction, right? Uh, it was only later that when I was in an editorial job and I had a great mate of a poet who said, ah, some of what you're writing is poetry, please. And then I turned to writing poetry. So I writing poetry. Comment. <laughs> Pardon? Was that a derogatory comment? No, no, it wasn't. It was an encouraging comment. Okay. Uh, you know, I was, uh, I, I, I looked at his work and thought, oh, yeah, you know, just magnificent to be able to do that. But I didn't think that I was capable of it myself. Um, but when he pointed out that, uh, you know, metaphor, which I, I, I think two elements are absolutely basic to poetry, and they're basic to writing, all sorts of writing. One is uh, metaphor the whole idea of metaphor, and the other is the whole uh, rhythmic structure. And I think in poetry that comes before, both of those things come before rhyme, for instance, although rhyme can be very powerful. Uh, so anyway, I'm working, I gradually work through 
that sort of thing. Introducing some of those elements into short fiction, uh, and my second book of poetry, if you can call it that, was a book of poetry and short fictions or prose poems and photography. Uh, and uh, that was a very satisfying thing to do. So I was already, uh, I was already using the poetic tone of voice, if you like, in prose, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, by the time I came to the novel, and then I thought, right, now if I've got a, a strong enough narrative line here, uh, and I've certainly got a lot to say, I can write it that way. You know, that's how I write it. I write it in these short life study segments that move but I'm reminded of it down the track of what they've already heard there and where that might lead in, in the future and so on and so on. So uh, so the, the novel, well, it's just, it's been marvellous to write to, um, and it has been a new experience in that sense but I think it's, I think I can see it as part of a progression from what I was doing before. Yeah. Mm. I get the feeling in some sense that you are trying, one of the things that you, you are aiming to do and you do successfully in this novel is to create a kind of, almost a kind of non-verbal meaning, the kind of um, impressionistic, sensual experience that one gets from listening yeah. to music or looking at yes. sort of yeah. something quite instinctive and, um, you know, rather than saying specifically, you know, a verb subject, um, that you're actually trying to elicit meaning. Yeah, yes. Uh Yes, I think you, you, well, I've always thought as a writer, you've got to be careful not to overstate. You never explain, you know, not to and try to reveal. And uh, I think that's part of the great satisfaction of it, really. Mm. Um, and you leave, I think you've got to leave the reader freedom of action, freedom of thought to bring their experience to what you're offering them, you know. Or what Tim, the narrator, is offering them, uh, and as you know, it's a it's a slightly postmodern, uh, slightly metafictional um, mode of storytelling that I'm adopting. But I don't want to go too far that way. And I think, uh, well, the reviews seem to suggest that it's come off all right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, now, I, I just talk again briefly about the the present tense in the book. Um, there's, there's a cursor, there's definitely a computer, Yeah. but they were fairly new in the 80s, um, presumably fairly new in the 80s in Australia. Yeah. Is, that, is that a hint that, um, you know, that, that present tense um, isn't necessarily the, the only time and place that we're in, that, that you know, time is shifting? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, well, it, it certainly is a, it's a pondering on... Um, well, what has become the rapidity of change, I suppose. Um, uh, and, uh, yes, it is a suggestion that uh, things would have been done differently in the past, if that's what you're getting at, I think. Um, and, I mean, as a writer, that is... I, I stand back from that, and I think it's quite incredible. I mean, I started writing with uh, pencil, um, uh, fountain pen... Uh, before ballpoints were invented, uh, you know, and then I progressed to ballpoints, and uh, then I progressed to, uh, you know, two-finger typing. We matched my thought processes on a portable typewriter, and uh, you know, didn't ever dream that I'd have something as 
great for the writer is cut and paste. I mean, cut and paste is the greatest gift to writing of any sort, I think, really, to be able to not to have to retype the whole the whole of the chap book chapter or whatever it is. You know, my previous books, I, I look back on them now and I wonder how I ever, ever wrote them without the computer. Um, so, yes, it's all of that, I suppose, is tied up. Not that I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm not sort of emphasising it in the novel, but uh, it lies behind what's happening with the cursor and the the comparison, in, you know, even in that passage I read of the real world and the writer's world, he he staggers out from this sort of uh, intuitive revelation about the hands being, the fingers being cut in the chaff cutter, cut into the real world smell and wetness and on this computer screen. And uh, yeah, I like that idea too, really. Uh, you're constantly sort of moving between uh, creation and taking in further material for creation, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yes, I do. Um, I, I enormous thought, I know we've we've made a couple of comparisons with, with Wolf and Joyce, but um, Proust as well. I, I almost saw those um, photographs functioning as, as Madelines. Um, yes. You know, yes, each yes. time he looks at one, it, it conjures now, a different that, experience. Well, that's fantastic. That you pick that up actually, because uh, the the, high, uh, the idea of the pristine Madeleines, right? Mm. Uh, because uh, I also take photographs. I don't know. I hesitate to call myself a photographer, even though I've had exhibitions of photographs and so on, and I enjoy it greatly. Uh, I hesitate because I'm, in comparison with a professional photographer doing it full time, I'm ignorant. <laughs> you know, have a lot of the the tricks of the trader or a lot of the technology that I could be using but but I I'm looking fairly constantly not only at um, you know literary magazines to see what people are writing in books and so on to see what people but also at uh, photographic magazines to to see what people dare to do there and there was one uh, when, when you get involved with taking a lot of photographs which I have over the years either for um, educational purposes or for writing factual books, you know, I did a big book in the 1970s which was published in 1980 and became a bestseller called Australia's Writers. Well, I had to do quite a lot of photography when I was researching and interviewing and so on with these writers. So when you've taken a lot, you, you end up with a lot of um, uh, proofs on. Uh, well, there are two things to say about this, but sorry, I don't want to go on too long about it, but one is that you uh, you can remember almost exactly the situation in which you were and even the way you felt when you took that shot, you know, mm. and what work went into getting that shot and who the person was that you were taking it of and how they were feeling at the time and all that sort of thing. And there was an American photographer who, who used that comparison with the Proust in Madeleines. He said... Uh, you know, I can go back to all of those, all of those things. Uh, now I can't do that for other people's photographs, but when you're talking to, well, for instance, who a professional photographer who used to do a lot of the processing for me, he was uncanny. In the same way that some literary editors are, he was uncanny in being able to say, "Hey, now wait a minute, someone a better shot of his shots." I mean, he just remembered them from proof sheets that he'd processed, mm. which I find incredible, but, you know, 
it's the Proustian Madeleine again. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And and I suppose at the end of the day, because you know life is life is a constant barrage of um, of experiences and images and so forth. But at the end of the day, um, sometimes you find that uh, do do you find that um, the, the photographs become your memories? You know that really is those are the things that um, that you're left with. Yes. And yes. everything else kind of fades. <laughs> yes, that's right. That that can happen and. It, and as soon as you start sort of thinking that way, you think, uh, now, this raises this whole question of truth. Who, who can claim to have the truth, you know? Uh, and yet this, uh, you know, like that uh, quote from Elizabeth Barrett, the, the fact that the very shadow of the person lying there fixed forever, um, you, you begin to think, now, this, this is the fall of status that it is truth. And it's a pose, isn't it, in many cases? It is truth, but then it's no more truth than fiction in, in some sense because you've, you've frozen something. Yes, exactly. It may exactly. reveal something, but it's not necessarily, you know, the way it, life was. No, exactly, exactly. It can, it can tell lies, as the fiction writer, of course, can tell lies. And, as and, and the, people are always looking for truth, aren't they? They're always saying, no, yes. your life, what yes. is your life? Did you have yes. these experiences? That's right. And I heard Norman Mailer, who's unfortunately just a part of this, but and I heard uh, uh, an interview with him just the other day where he's saying uh, virtually that that uh, uh, he's the fiction writer is a licensed. I often say that in writing workshops. I do a lot of writing workshops with people who are interested in writing, and I say, well, as a fiction writer, you are a licensed liar. And of course, you can develop like Joseph Furphy did in Such as Life. You can develop a fallible narrator, and the reader you leave the reader the freedom to tumble to the fact that this person doesn't quite know what they're talking about. They've made basic wrong assumptions about things, which is very powerful in Such as Life. Mm. You know. Yeah, do, and do people do people ask you, you know, is there a relationship between your life and this work? Do, do you find that they're a little bit disappointed if you tell them, you know, really, this is a fiction? <laughs> well, yes, everybody wants to know. That people people sidle up to you and say, is it autobiographical? <laughs> and the answer to that is, it's almost impossible to give an answer to that. Of course it is up to a point, because you, you are, in this novel anyway, if I were writing about 15th century France or something, it would be something completely different, but I'm writing about my period of life, uh, roughly my sort of life, and so on. I, I want to bring in, uh, well, if you can call them wisdoms, things that I've discovered, things that life has taught me. Uh, so yes, in that sense, it's uh, autobiographical, I suppose, but the characters are all inventions, and, and what they do are all inventions, and uh, you know, you'll take a, a phrase that somebody added to you in a completely different context years ago. There's one statement that uh, came from a friend of mine. He, he watched me going off to play tennis one day and he said, all sport is vanity. You know. <laughs> and I thought, well, I give that. I put that into the mouth of one of the female characters, a friend of the mother in the, in the novel. Yeah, it's uh, a good know, line. You've plucked it from somewhere completely different. Yeah. Of course, you could probably say that about anything. Yes. Um, now, tell me, we we kind of at the end of our time yes, here. Yes, right. Um, we'll to think we're, we're finished with our um, half hour slot. But just tell me, are yeah. you working on something else? Something you can uh, tell us well, about? I'm, well, I'm, I'm not 
working on uh, an extended piece of fiction at the moment because I'm still thinking about what else I might write at that length. Um, but I am working on um, short fictions and I am coming back to poetry. I found for a time with the novel, uh, it was very difficult to break out of the prose that I was, you know, I really had to um, work at consistently day in, day out. Uh, I found it difficult to break out of that into poetry. And I always find that to get back into poetry, I have to read a lot of poetry. So I, I am doing, I'm beginning to do that again, following on the uh, sort of media and uh, running around and readings and so on, that, you know, follow the launch of a novel. So, yes, I'm, I'm still working, but not necessarily on another novel. And it's exhausts the break, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's wonderful, Graham. Thank you so much for your time. Well, I've enjoyed it greatly. Yes, I'm, I'm going to have to start scheduling these for an hour because I never get enough time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. and uh, thanks. Thank you to all our listeners, and that concludes our show. This will be available on podcast as well, almost immediately, so it can be downloaded to your favorite MP3 player and listened to in the car, um, better than commercial radio, and uh, any, anywhere else that uh, you'd otherwise be just standing around. So um, thanks again, and goodbye. Goodbye.